Hello and welcome to another session of Mice Conversations. My name is Michael Collins. I run travelmedia.ie. I'm based in Dublin. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Karen Yu, who is the group editor of TTG Asia, and Karen is based in Singapore. But from Singapore, she has a team of 20-plus editors and writers across the Asia-Pacific region, region rather, and that, of course, gives us a unique insight to what's happening in Asia right now. Karen is personally involved in TTG Asia, TTG Associations, and the award-winning TTG MICE. Karen also produces her own conference, which is the annual Asia Mice Cruise Conference in Bangkok, which last took place, I think, in 2019. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm delighted to have you with us. Um, first, I wonder if you could just start on a personal level. How has this pandemic been for you in the Asia region, personally and from a work perspective? Well, um, I've been well. Thank you very much for asking that, Michael. You know, I've been working from home and... You know, working from home has its perks. So I've been able to fit in an exercise routine finally and prepare proper meals for myself before lunch. Um, you know, pre-pandemic, I used to travel for work at least once every month, you know, for an average of a week each time. And that takes me away from my family quite a bit. Now, without travel, the the, the advantage is that my bo both my boys get to have me at home all day and I'm enjoying this while I can. Uh, Work-wise, the newsroom has been very busy as is expected during times of crisis. We hardly see our colleagues, though, uh, as we have moved into a permanent work-from-home arrangement. So I really miss the office buzz. Yeah, I can ap appreciate that. And yeah. uh, Timmy, how is Singapore doing at the moment? From what we're seeing in Europe, where I'm based, is that Asia seems to be ahead of Europe in terms of how it's handled the crisis, but also in terms of vaccine rollout. How are things in Singapore? Okay, so um, we're currently now in um, uh, progressive reopening. So Singapore actually entered a partial lockdown on April 7th last year. So it's about a one-year anniversary now, uh, which required offices and schools to be closed and residents to stay at home. Um, as things got under control, we started a progressive reopening since June 2nd last year. Um, so like I said, we are currently in phase three, which really means that we can go out and do things as we used to do pre-COVID. Um, but with the safe distancing measures in place and with tracing requirements enforced, so all Singapore residents carry a token, a physical token that we need to scan whenever, wherever we go. Um, we can also do a QR code um, um, scanning on our mobile phones. Basically, it allows the government to just trace and track our movement just in case uh, we need to, to, to track infection exposure tracing. So we also started our um, nationwide vaccine rollout, uh, which is free for all uh, residents. Uh, that happened in January. So essential workers first uh, got it, followed by the vulnerable elderly. Progress has been quite good, and the government has recently off offered free vaccination to residents aged 45 to 59. So I'm still waiting for my turn, Michael, you know, because I'm still considered too young and too fit for the government <laughs> to worry about. <laughs> That's a good complaint. And I mean, so that's it. It's almost the exact opposite to what we're experiencing here. First of all, you've had a progressive, you know, unlocking since mid last year. Whereas what we've had in Europe is a seesaw or a roller coaster where we go in and out of lockdown, and that is incredibly hard for business. And then also, contact tracing has not been good in most of Europe. So it's it's interesting to see the difference. But yet, the 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 timescale of the vaccine rollout is very similar, I think, to, to a lot of Europe. Mm. How, does how does Singapore compare to the rest of, of Asia? Because what we're seeing here in Europe is different countries moving at different speeds. I assume it's similar in Asia? 
Yep. So Asia is very diverse. Uh, so yes, the progress has been at uh, different speeds. Um, here in Singapore, we have been fortunate. We haven't had to reverse our phased reopening due to sudden spikes in infection. So thank goodness for that. Um, in fact, we have been able to move forward in resuming life as closely as it was pre-COVID. So for, insta for instance, uh, uh, last October, we established this set of safe meetings measures uh, protocols to bring back business events. So this protocol includes you know, on-site uh, rapid swap tests on all in-person attendees, uh, delegate zoning for safe distancing, altered FMB services, so nothing that's on a buffet line. Um, even when food is served to you, it's covered um, for, for, for uh, safety precaution. Yeah. So that, that was what uh, has happened in the business events. Our world. Um, the state of pandemic management differs across Asia, you know, because this region is, like I said, so diverse, different political systems, different uh, uh, geography, different population size and distribution also. So I guess for Singapore being a small city state, you know, with a population of just 6 million people, kind of make it easier for enforcement of health and safety regulations. And Tammy, I mean, from, from where I'm sitting in the mice industry here in Europe, I suppose we look with envy almost. We see that there are events taking place already in Singapore too. I noted or read about where the Singapore Tourism Industry Conference and then the GeoConnect Asia event 2021. What exactly is it like? I mean, I understand that there are protocols in terms of obviously sanitization, uh, mask wearing, but also testing. So is it the rapid antigen test that people take? And then I understand also that That's there right. are you know, you can get a pass if you've got your, your vaccine already, you can skip that part. Is that is that how it's working? Yes. Okay. So, so let me just, just go back to, to um, um, you know, how we are reopening. So obviously everyone who, who, who I spoke to um, are excited to get back to, uh, to live and to attend events. So um, uh, the Singapore Tourism Industry Conference and the GeoConnect Asia were some of the events that happened this year, but even last year we were already trialing some of the safe meetings measure protocol um, that the governments are, are set up. So of course, the more in-person events we host, the more experience we gain, the better we can get to rebuilding confidence to bring back public and business events. So the GeoConnect Asia was probably the third or fourth um, major hybrid event to be held in Singapore with the safe meetings uh, measures in place. There have been about 60 smaller scale business events held post lockdown and you know, of um, altogether, there will be there were about nine thousand attendees and, and and zero cluster infections. So this uh, antigen uh, rapid antigen swab test that you you were asking me about, um, it's it's a very quick process actually. So I've been to a couple of uh, in person events. So you just and you just get to the site. Um, it's a very quick process. You you queue up to get your turn. You get swapped very quickly and no pain. Um, you go into another room, a nice room where everyone is safe distance. Then you wait for your results that comes out in about 20 minutes. And then you can go into the, uh, the pre-event foyer and, and you can meet with people within your own zone. Now, of course, uh, the latest development is uh, from April 24th onwards, vaccinated residents can attend events without undergoing uh, on-site swap tests. So that really helps with uh, massive events because can you imagine testing a few, several thousands of people yes. in the one morning? Yeah. Yep. Interesting. And, and what I hear you saying there, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm understanding here is that the government is leading the way here. So it's the government that are establishing the protocols. It's the government that are helping and managing this. Whereas in Europe, you know, governments haven't got involved at that, you know, micro level of events yet. They're more focused on the macro, which is vaccine rollout and travel protocols, etc. Is that correct? The government mm -hmm. are leading the way here? 
Yes, uh, and, and this initiative is not just the government alone. Um, the good thing about how um, Singapore has responded is that there's a lot of private and public partnerships. So the government is, is, is facilitating the process, but also uh, through conversations with industry leaders. So they've been working very closely with our local MICE Association, which represents all um, industry players in the MICE uh, uh, sphere. So, um, and also uh, tourism representatives. So they all came together with uh, um, to brainstorm ways to restart the tourism industry as quickly and as safely as possible. Now, this is necessary for us because Singapore is a small city state and tourism is a big part of um, our economy. Very interesting. And, and then on a, a, a broader European or sorry, Asian level, health passports, it's a big topic here in Europe. And I don't think you call them uh, passports. Um, you call them green lanes, maybe. Um, tell me about what's happening at that level in terms of passports or, you know, reciprocal air routes, etc. Okay. Um, well, um, it, I'll just answer you uh, your question about the air, air travel first. Now, there are some essential green lanes uh, and travel bubbles in Asia, but these arrangements are quite fragile because, you know, conditions could change when there are new infection waves. So some of our neighbours have had to make the painful decision to go back under lockdown again and again because of sudden spikes in infection. So the most recent was actually um, in Thailand and travel between high-risk provinces require mandatory uh, quarantine. So Singapore was also incredibly close to establishing a travel bubble with Hong Kong last uh, November. So under that program, travellers from both points would come and go without restrictive mandatory uh, quarantines. They only needed to clear their pre-arrival uh, COVID test. But the bubble was burst just a day before it took off because of a spike in cases in Hong Kong. So that really emphasises how fragile that arrangement uh, is. Um, but beyond Singapore, we did we did have um, some good news also. Um, Taiwan and Palau uh, recently launched on April 1st what was said to be Asia's first COVID uh, uh, travel bubble. And also you know that on April 19, Australia and New Zealand took off their, their travel bubble successfully yes. and there were a lot of happy uh, family reunions at the airport. Um, you also asked about vaccine passports and certificates. Um, again, developments around this is also very varied, Michael. You know, in March, the Chinese government um, established a vaccine passport that it hopes could, you know, be accepted uh, globally. Um, and then, you know, following that in, in April, um, um, Japan is also looking to do the same by issuing vaccination certificates to citizens and hoping um, that having that document put on an app would allow international travel to restart. So um, as for the, the vaccine passport for Japan, I've not heard any further development. So I'm still watching that, that um, how it will unfold. Meanwhile, in Singapore, our leaders are still deciding how to, to show uh, you know, proof of inoculation. Um, but you know, for all this uh, vaccine, uh, vaccine and health passports to work, you know, they, they must be recognized at, at many borders, not just within the country. And that requires a willingness among governments to share information and a commitment to ironing out data privacy concerns. And those are huge obstacles to overcome. Yeah, I mean, in, in Europe, I think, I mean, we, we see Asia as being ahead of us in terms of much more open when it comes to sharing data with government and in particular health passports, for example. I think we're split here in Europe. But if I look at, you know, go the other way and I look at the US, Joe Biden has said, you know, that they won't enforce uh, health passports for travel. 
And, you know, I can understand that on a local level, national level, but when it comes to international travel, it could be problematic because people will want passports or proof, as you say, of inoculation. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. Can I ask on on a much more simplistic level in terms of just confidence? I mean, we've been all told to stay at home for a year, to wash our hands, that the virus is incredibly dangerous. And I see, you know, I look at friends and peers and colleagues and I see a 50-50 split. Some people uh, want to travel, can't wait to travel, and others are afraid to travel and have no intention of traveling and, you know, have changed their opinion towards travel completely. How is confidence in Asia towards travel? Uh, There have been a lot of trouble intention uh, studies in this region and all have found an an intense desire to get back to overseas vacations. So most recently, travel platform Agoda, you probably would be familiar with that name, uh, recently published a study that showed a growing optimism by travellers across Asia that international travel will restart soon. So consumers in countries like Australia, South Korea, Japan, and Indonesia are all intensifying their search for on, for international destinations. And an, even another uh, research by Booking.com found that 71% of Singaporeans are hopeful of traveling this year as the national vaccination program picks up speed. The same percentage even expressed a desire to travel more this year because of last year's uh, travel withdrawal. So, you know, Michael, Asians travel a lot. We're so used to getting on a plane for a weekend break because there's so many wonderful options just within an hour or yes. two away. And taking that freedom away from us kind of makes us appreciate travel <laughs> so much more, you know? Well, that, that's good to hear. That's a positive message because we certainly look towards Asia from this part of the world for signs or indicators. Tell me, one trend that I'm seeing, and I, I'm interested to know if you would agree, is that, um, you know, th- we're in a hybrid world now, and I've seen a hybrid and hub world, uh, and I've experienced a few conferences myself. Um, but I think there's going to be a split in terms of people are asking, well, if I continue to have a conference that is both live and also virtual, it's going to cost me additional money because of all the AV technical elements involved. But there are certain conferences, let's say, for example, an educational um, or information conference where it makes sense for one to experience that from home where you don't necessarily need to travel. But yet, on the other side, there are trade conferences and trade shows where networking is so important. Um, How do you see the world going forward in terms of hybrid, hub, live, etc.? You know, the the hybrid format has only showed the benefit of um, an expanded audience. So before before this before this this pandemic, right? Um, to convince an event organizer to have a a, a virtual version of the conference uh, would take a lot of uh, convincing. Um, but when people started to move, when event organizers started to move into hybrid conferences, they realized that they could at access a much wider international audience who could not tune in very easily on the desktop at home. So that. Um, expose the, their program to a much wider audience, which is beneficial for the event brand. Now, going forward, once um, travel is possible, I don't think that will disappear. There will always be people who cannot attend a conference, you know, because of time, because of cost. Um, and that hybrid model allows you to still capture those people who are not able to attend. But if you're organizing a throat show, that requires people to interact in person, to see a machinery, to see you know, product samples, to touch and feel and to talk. You can't replace that with, with uh, a virtual uh, version. 
it's, it's just um, difficult to do business that way. So we can expect um, a hybrid model to still remain, but probably mostly around um, trade events with a bigger educational um, component compared to a trading component. Yeah, that makes sense. Agreed. And, and last question, um, Karen. Um, travel between Europe and, and Asia. I mean, I see Europe opening up a little bit. Um, there are plans now for Europe and the US to open up again. But Europe and Asia, I think, you know, that's going to take a little bit longer. And to a certain extent, I see Asia almost operating, you know, by itself. It's such a big market that, you know, trade shows and conferences and events can almost take place by themselves. I mean, China by itself is so big that, you know, uh, events will take place without a European input. Do you see that happening next year being a much longer uh, process or what are your thoughts or, or is Asia waiting and wanting to welcome Europe back again? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I need a crystal ball for that for, to answer that, Michael. Do you have one to, to loan to me? <laughs> That's why it was the last question. <laughs> Most of the industry leaders I spoke to, you know, have only dared to offer a very cautious guess. You know, regional travel may begin sometime late this year, regional travel, huh? But uh, when it comes to international travel, predictions are really, really cautious. And, and many are saying much later, you know, even as late as 2024. That's crazy, right? Yes. You know, but it's important to understand and remember that Asia may be one single region, but the government operates in very different ways and very independently. So, you know, India has bilateral travel bubbles with many countries, including those in Europe, like uh, Germany, France and the UK. And China has only arrangements with select countries and none are in Europe. Uh, Asian governments are really watching how other countries are dealing with the virus and their travel policies could change with the situation. Whether or not Asia wants to reopen links with uh, um, uh, long-haul markets in the Europe, for example, uh, really depends on um, how those countries are coping with the virus. As long as a, a destination in Europe is able to have comparable uh, control over the, the pandemic, there will always be that chance for a bridge to appear between Asia and Europe. Okay, very interesting. Hopefully so. Um, Karen, Mm -hmm. thank you very much for your time. Um, For people who've enjoyed this conversation and want to know more about you, where can they find out more about you personally and obviously also TTG Asia? So I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, My name is Karen Yu. um, And all my, uh, you know, all our titles are on um, www.ttgasia.com um, and also ttgmice.com um, you just go around poke around and you can find even more uh, titles that we do Excellent, well look I'll, inc- I'll include all those links in the description here in this uh, in this video and also on the LinkedIn post that I put up as well, so look Karen you, thank you very much for your time I really appreciate it, it's been a really good insight and hopefully we'll get to see you in person in the future, thank you again For sure Michael, take care